epistle reading comes from, uh, and will also be our sermon text for this morning, from Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, before I get started, I was going to make a, an announcement earlier, but um, I thought I would just do it while I'm here. Um, I just want us all to, to remember the event that we are hosting on October 24th with Joshua Swamidas, uh, professor at Wash U, who is going to be speaking about the genealogical Adam and Eve. I believe there are uh, plenty of flyers out in the Narthex. Um, as I mentioned in one of my emails to, uh, if you have, if you have friends, relatives who, uh, have struggled with Christian, Christianity or just struggled with Christ, and especially if they've struggled due to Darwinian evolution and just feeling like Christians don't like science or can't reconcile science with faith, I really encourage you to invite them. Uh, I've, I have one person in mind, and I've already invited him, and I believe he's coming. Um, but I would love to have a quarter of our audience be people who have struggled with Christianity, especially in this area. 
Because I think it'll be helpful, and I think it'll be helpful for us as Christians to understand, because sometimes when we're, when we're dealing with these kind of questions, it is a little bit fearful. There are struggles with that. And I think, I think Dr. Swamidas does a, a wonderful job in his book and also in, in his uh, times speaking where he can really help answer some of those questions or at least help us with our struggles. So I really would encourage you to, to make a point to be here on the 24th of October at 6 p.m. and to invite some friends. All right, amen. Let's take some time to pray before we get into today's text. Father, I thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your word. And we just ask that today your word would shape our hearts. The living word, Jesus Christ, the living word of God. Lord, work in our hearts. Shape us. Encourage us. Convict us. Move us. Do what you will through the preaching of your word this morning. Work through me and let your spirit work in our hearts, all of us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, if you noticed on the liturgy, hopefully you got one today, that um, it's been a while since we've had paintings or prints on the front of our liturgy. This morning, I thought it very appropriate to do this because as I was doing uh, my study work through the book of Hebrews, this painting in particular and this painter was mentioned by one of the commentators. And uh, this painting is by a man named Peter Bruegel, uh, I think his full name is Peter Bruegel the Elder, so I'm assuming there's a younger one out there somewhere. Um, and he was from the 16th century. And this painting is called Census at Bethlehem. Now, when you look at the painting, I don't know if you see anything that looks like the Census at Bethlehem. Uh, I certainly didn't at first. Um, and so it, it caused me to wonder what was going on here. Does anybody, uh, has anyone seen this painting before? I actually saw it yesterday at the Milligan House across from uh, Old Orchard um, in their bathroom. They have a print hanging up there, so it was neat. Um, do you see Mary and Joseph in there, in this painting? They are in there. So down at the bottom toward the toward, eh, kind of middle right, uh, you'll see a, a donkey with a woman on, on the donkey and a man leading the donkey, and that is Mary and Joseph. Now, we look at this painting and we think, what is, why, why did he represent the census of Bethlehem in this way? What does that have to do with today's sermon? <laughs> well, what Bruegel is doing here is he, he was, he was a, a political activist, and, and a lot of his paintings had political themes. Um, and what he's doing here is he is well? I'll just I'll just read what one uh, art historian said. The Holy Family is absorbed in the mundane world of grumpy, occupied, tired people. None of them realize that something world-changing is about to happen. It's frozen yet silently festive. Did they know that it was the eve of Christmas? Did they sense redemption on its way? The painting, Bruegel's painting, is thus an invitation to each one of us to recognize the Savior in our midst. So what Bruegel is demonstrating here is that although the coming of the Savior happened 1,600 years before his painting, and it happened in Bethlehem, Bruegel's painting, he, what he's doing is bringing in the hope of Christ 
and the power of the gospel, acknowledging that that is applicable to our day right now in this little oppressed Dutch village. And he's saying the birth of Christ matters then, the birth of Christ matters now. And the life and the power of Christ matter now. So this was the artist's way of creating a timelessness. And art, artists have done that throughout history, of creating some type of a timelessness, especially to the work of Christ, to the, a lot of religious paintings, have, somewhat, have, have some timelessness to them, where they are reaching back to the past and also in the present and looking forward to the future. In a similar way, to the, the, the writer to the Hebrews is demonstrating how the words of God in the Old Testament, or what they knew of as the scriptures, it wasn't the Old Testament to them, it was their scriptures. But how those scriptures written some thousand years ago still applied to this audience today, or then, and today, as we'll see. The promises of the scripture, all the scripture, are just as applicable today as they were then. He's saying the words of the Old Covenant The words passed down by angels, mediated by Moses, spoken by the prophets, are not obsolete. Why? Because they are the words of the eternal Son. They're the words of the eternal God. As he said, in various times, in many ways, God spoke through the prophets, but now, today, he speaks through his Son. He's spoken in the past. The word of God, the words that were spoken in the past are eternal words, and they became flesh in the Son of God. As John says, the word became flesh. And he dwelt among us, and he's greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. And today we're going to see that he is greater than Moses, who was highly regarded, who was um, is, is, as important of a figure as can be in the Jewish faith. So let's look at this text in, in detail here. Chapter 3, as, as he gave one warning in, in chapter 2 at the beginning, he said, be careful lest we drift, drift away. He starts off, and this chapter is full of quite a few warnings here. It's, it's not a very uplifting chapter, but it is a serious chapter with warnings that we need to heed and that he was, that he was warning this church that was about to go through a very difficult time in their own wilderness period. Chapter 3, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. First of all, he reminds them that you have a heavenly calling, brothers. And that word, Adelphoi, is brothers. It could be brethren or brothers, sisters. It's, it's, it's saying everyone to the church. You share in a heavenly calling. This heavenly calling is, is looking at the goal. This calling comes and, and from the source. The, the, the call comes from, from the presence of God and is leading us to the presence of God. He's reminding them, you have this heavenly calling. You are part of this. You share in it with, with the rest of God's people. Now, now that I told you about who Jesus is, now that I told you how great he is, in, in, in word, in his presence with the Father, his equality with the Father, and how great he is over the angels. Now consider Jesus. Consider Jesus because he's also the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's the one who is worthy to be the sent one, which, by the way, was also what Moses was. Moses was the apostle of God. He was sent by God to deliver his people. And he was also the high priest, as we saw last week in chapter 2. He was the high priest, the faithful high priest, who not only 
sacrificed, but became the sacrifice for us. So he is saying, as, as again, we, we see this trans, trans, uh, transgression of, or, or progression, I'm sorry, of Jesus being better to everything he's comparing with. With the word, with the words that were spoken before, the ones who spoke the word before, with the angels, and now he's getting to Moses. Verse 2, he says, so he, he ends this with saying, who, uh, Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. And then 2, he says, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You notice here, he's not saying yet that Jesus is better than Moses. He's comparing them, saying that they were both faithful in their way. Moses was faithful in God's house. As faithful as one can be, is what he's saying here. And Jesus is faithful in God's house. Moses, as I said before, was one of the most highest regarded figures in Judaism. The writer is not contrasting Jesus and Moses here necessarily to... Um, he, he wants to acknowledge the, the, the faith of Moses. In fact, this harkens back to Numbers 12 when the Lord after Aaron and Miriam were upset because uh, Moses was marrying a Cushite woman who was darker-skinned, and they had something to say about that, well, the Lord had something to say to them. And he said this in Numbers 12. He said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly. I don't speak to him in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. So do you see the, 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 the weight, the gravity on the presence of Moses for the Jews? He was someone that God spoke to face to face. He was one that beheld the glory of the Lord. So naturally, the Jews held Moses up in very high regard. But now the writer goes on in verse 3. Yet, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, though. You see, Moses had a lot of glory, didn't he? He did have a lot of glory. But Jesus was kind of more worthy. He had more glory. In fact, he had much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. The house may be beautiful. This building here, think about it. It's beautiful. But what, what's, what's one thing we ask? Who, who designed this building? The building is beautiful, but it's not beautiful without a designer and without a builder. The builder of the house is going to get the glory. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. In other words, as one commentator put it, faithful sonship is superior to faithful servanthood. Yes, Moses was faithful, but Moses was a servant. Christ was faithful, but Christ was the son, the builder William Lane, who I've quoted before, said this about this part of Hebrews. This is the writer responding to a confused and dispirited congregation. 
Remember, this congregation was facing difficult times, uncertainty, not knowing what was going to happen under Nero's regime. It is the beginning of a sustained effort from the writer to persuade the hearers to remain loyal to Christ in the presence of pressures that would encourage them to abandon their confession. Does that sound relevant to you? Are you facing troubles? Are you facing things that are causing you to question your faith? To question whether God is real, whether he is out there, to question whether what Christ is doing is making sense, and does he even care? Just as the books and the, and, the, and the teachings of old were relevant for this audience, for us, the same thing goes for the things that were written to this audience. They are relevant to God's church of today as well. Yes, Moses was great. But he's saying, remember, Moses is looking up to Christ. And so should we. Writer goes on, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is transitional. Now he's going to the warnings. You see, he said, we are, we are, those who are in Christ, we are God's house. Notice how many times this word house is repeated in these five verses from two to six? Six times. The word house here is referring to God's people. This is God's house. We are God's house. And it's significant to note that Moses and Jesus were faithful as a son and servant, but they were faithful over the same house. So, as God's house, what are we called to do? What is he calling God's house to do? Well, what I see here is he's calling us to obey God's word. He's calling us to stand firm in God's word. And he's calling us to humbly respond to God's word. We are called to obey God's word. Verse 7, the writer goes on and says, now he's quoting Psalm 95, and he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, notice that he says, as the Holy Spirit says. And by the way, when he's saying the Holy Spirit says, this, this, the Greek here, what's nice with the Greek is you can read the tense and, and know when he's meaning. This is in the present tense. So he's saying, the Holy Spirit is saying right now, even though this was written some thousand years ago, perhaps. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's he talking about here? He's talking about the wilderness generation after the Exodus. When Moses was sent as God's apostle to deliver the Jews out of the hands of Pharaoh. And he took them out into the wilderness. But it wasn't easy. They were struck with many difficulties. There was lack of water. There was lack of food. There were giants in the land. 
and the people rebelled. Not all, but some. Many. Numbers 14, 11 recalls this. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. There, there is a significance here to why he's using this psalm, to why he's using this reference to the wilderness generation. You see, the wilderness generation was going through their own difficulties. They were going through their own imminent sufferings, and yet trying to believe that God had them. They had already gone through this once, and now they're going to go through it again. Does God care? And what the, what the psalmist says, what the writer is saying here, is saying, don't let your hearts get hard because of this. You have to trust God is what he's saying. Trust in him. Yes, he's going to bring you through difficult times. He did it back in the wilderness generation. But they would not believe. And their hearts grew hard. And they became rebellious. Another reason why he is mentioning the wilderness generation is because as we see the timelessness of God's word here, we see parallels with Christ all throughout the wilderness generation, the exodus going through the Red Sea. F.F. Bruce, who is a a pretty well-known New Testament commentator, says this, the death of Christ is itself called an exodus. See, when Jesus in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Luke 9, during the transfiguration, Elijah and Moses appear with him, and it says he spoke to them about his departure. The Greek word for that is exodus. He spoke to them about his exodus. F.F. Bruce points that out. He also points out a few other things. Jesus is the true Passover. He is sacrificed for his people, a lamb without blemish, as Peter says, a lamb without blemish and spot in 1 Peter 1.19. In Acts 7, Stephen refers to the church. They, Israel, in the early days, are the church in the wilderness. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, refers to their baptism into Christ. Our baptism into Christ is like Israel's passage through the Red Sea. And then he goes on and says, he's the rock, the living rock that brought living water in the wilderness. This is Christ, all applied to Christ. So you see, when the the writer of Hebrews is bringing the wilderness generation into this, he's seeing Christ as a part of this too. He's seeing the people being disobedient to Christ and not trusting the salvation that Christ provides. As I said, some of us in our fellowship this morning are in danger of going astray. I think it goes without saying. Some of us have grown hardened hearts through difficult things that have happened, through trials, through sufferings. It's it's like petrified wood, how petrified wood occurs. The living organisms get replaced with dead organisms that just fill the voids and fill the whole piece of wood until what you have is something that looks exactly like the piece of wood, but it's rock hard. It's dead. This is what can happen to our hearts when we neglect 
our Lord. When we're struggling with faith, when we, when, when we decide to ignore him, when we turn from him, when going through difficult times, we turn our backs on him. And he's calling us as a warning. He's saying, don't let this happen. Now, we're Presbyterians, and we believe in, I don't like saying this, once saved, always saved. I don't like, I'm I'm saying that only for lack of a better term right now. But I really don't like that term because it doesn't, it's, it's not true to how the gospel teaches. Because we're told here in the New Testament that we need to persevere in our faith. That we need to hold firm. So what do we do? We're going through these these difficult times. What do we do? Verse 12, he says now, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So number one, be aware of your heart. Be aware of your heart lest there be anything in you of an unbelieving heart, anything leading you to fall astray from our Lord. Then he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Exhort one another, persuade one another, care for one another as long as it is called today. Why? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He's calling us into community with one another and to care for one another. I think one of the problems we've had, I've had, I've experienced it myself in in this time, is we've learned to isolate ourselves. Not just during the pandemic. We just learned to isolate ourselves. We learned to mind our own business. And some of that feels good, I understand. But as we're talking about our, our history of grace and peace today a little bit, and just reflecting on it. I was reflecting on one of the uh, things in our, in our Constitution here, when it talks about membership. And uh, somebody called this the might well clause. Is that, uh, I was talking to Brad about that. and The might well clause. And it says this, personal integrity is honored and one's own place before the Lord is respected. When conflicts and schedules occur, Members might well confer with one another, with, with, with another member before deciding to miss Sunday worship service, prayer groups, congregational meetings, or any activity to which they have committed themselves. There was something in here that was holding us accountable to one another. To say, if you're not going to come, you might well call somebody. You might want to check in. Why? So that they can keep tab, tabs on your business? No so that you could be cared for. Because what if you are one of those who is going astray? What if there is uh, an unbelieving heart being stirred up in you, and you're just starting to avoid the church? We're called to exhort one another. We're called to call on one another, to care for one another, not to get in your business, but out of love, because we want to get there together. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And he repeats, as it said today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Thirdly, he calls us to a humble response. 
Because he reminds the, the Hebrews here, he reminds this audience, he says, verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it Gentiles? Was it the Assyrians? Was it not all those who God sent Moses to deliver out of Egypt? Was it not us? Delivered, but not saved. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This passage ends with a warning. Be great if it ended with something very hopeful. And I hope it will. At least the sermon. But it's not a warning for the Gentiles or the people who don't know Christ. It's a warning for the household of God. It's a warning for us. The warning is for God's people. People for whom are the word of God, the covenants and all the promises. These warnings are for you and for me. The word of God is living and active. And we need to remember that the word of God is Christ himself. So we're keeping the Sabbath perfectly. Are we keeping these laws perfectly? We may be doing things just as we're supposed to on the outside. But are we resting in Christ? Are we believing him when he says, I have you? Are we believing the Lord when his word says, I will keep you and you're going out and you're coming in. I will never forsake you. I will always be with you. That's hard. It's hard for me. It's, it's, it's easy when things are going well. It's hard when there are difficult times, when there is suffering happening. It is hard to hold on to those words. And that's why we're told to exhort one another, to care for and love one another in the love of Christ. I'm going to close with this from Psalm 19. Keeping this as our background, that Jesus said in Matthew 5:17 that all the words of the law and the prophets I came to fulfill. I came to fulfill the law. Psalm 19, verse 7 says this: The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, In keeping them, there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And in this verse, this prayer, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock, 
and my Redeemer. Brothers and sisters, at all times, it is today. Today is now that we hear the voice of the Lord, the Holy Spirit saying to us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. May we, as a community, as the house of God, seek the Lord through his holy word. Obey in good times and bad. Encourage one another and humbly submit ourselves to his eternal power, his powerful living and active word, who is Christ himself. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we can identify with the people in the wilderness. Help us when our hearts begin to turn. Give us the courage to care for one another. Give us the courage to call out to you that we may not go astray. Hold us, I pray. We are weak. We are so weak. We need your strength. Your strength is perfected in our weakness, and I pray that you would do that, Lord. Help us in Christ's name. Amen.